We will be continuing on in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, if you'd like to open up your Bibles there. Romans chapter 6. And Father, I know that Les just prayed for us, with us. But I also know that you don't tire of hearing us lift up voices in prayer. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful we have an attentive Father who does not tire of the voices of His children. And so, Father, I just pray again, asking for Your Spirit to show us Your Word. Spirit of truth, would You lead us into all truth and continue to give us understanding. We ask, Father, that You would put the cookies on the bottom shelf for us tonight so we could enjoy and hear and have revelation and grow in the knowledge and in the passion that we have for our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Why would anyone reject the grace of God? I mean, think about that. For, for you people of faith, you people who have put your trust in Jesus, why would anyone do that? When you get to this side of that decision, when you get to the, the trusting, the faith side of a choice to follow Jesus, sometimes it's hard to look back and even remember why I put that off. Why I wouldn't want to embrace the grace that God offers. And, and the only thing that I could come up with is that grace is a risk. On the other side of faith, prior to making a decision, before being born again, grace is a risk. It puts me out of control of my life. It puts the entire future of my life in the hands of another. It takes the presumed power out of my hands, that which I think I have, which I really don't have, but I think I do. I think I've got some measure of control. It takes it out of my hands and places it into the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, who forevermore I gotta trust to see me through to the other side. I gotta trust that this is actually going to work. I have to step into the place where my only hope is to trust in another. That again being Jesus. He said, no one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other choice. But that means I have to trust Him to get there. It means I have to believe in Him and I can't always see Him. And I can't take the reins back into my hands. I can only come along for the ride. And I hate, I hate sitting in the passenger seat. Ask Cheryl. I'm just not comfortable there. If I've ever ridden in the passenger seat with you driving, understand I'm freaking out over there. It is not my favorite place. I will not sit in the back seat. You can just put that right out of your mind. But at least the passenger seat I can press really hard on the floorboard when I feel like we need to slow down. Some measure of control. You know, I want to control the vehicle over the onslaught of the oncoming traffic. As if. And you all know this. It's a horrible thought as you're driving down the road, especially on the freeway heading down to Seattle, and you realize at any moment any car could come careening across the middle island and, and, and run right into you. you got no control over that. 
some nutcase can be two lanes over and decide to swerve right into you and it's all over. But we think, I got control. You know, I've got some power here. And you know, it comes from experiencing accidents. How many of you have been in automobile accidents? That is not a good statistic. (laughs) And yet we keep getting behind the wheel of our cars. I have had my share. I don't like them. I don't want them. I just say no to them. And if I can avoid them, I will. So I get behind the wheel. For those who have been hurt, whether by accident or by intent, grace is a risk. If you have put your trust in another and it has been violated, whether, again, intentionally or not, grace is a risk. How can I trust again? So it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul took tons of flack for preaching the gospel of grace. It would be the biggest reason, I believe, after reading through Acts, studying through Acts, the biggest reason why Paul was persecuted. Because he kept talking about this thing called grace. And his own people, the Jewish people, did not like it because it ran counter to their understanding of law, which was controlling, because if I do these things, if I hang tight to the wheel and I steer it, I can get home. And here comes the Apostle Paul saying, not likely. You can't do it. And he starts preaching this thing called grace. And my friends, among Jews and Gentiles alike, it is an offense to the controlling power of humanity. Grace is a risk. In verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We talked about this. Grace superabounded. Grace superabounded. And I said this Sunday, and I believe I may have said it last week as well, you can't out grace. Which is a statement that would have offended me 30 years ago. You can't out grace. <laughs> That's a very risky thing to say out loud. That's radical. <laughs> Paul was a radical. An agitator. You can't out grace. You cannot sin bigger than the grace of God extended to cover all sin. And I think we need to understand that. Not as license to sin. But understanding that grace is bigger. Grace is greater. And in Romans chapter 6, what's great about this is Paul answers his detractors. He answers those who object to this whole idea of the super abundance of grace. The law came in so that grace would increase, or sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace superabounded. He makes the statement and then anticipates exactly what his detractors are going to say, and he meets them head on. And so chapter 6 truly is Paul's response to those who reject the notion that God's grace is bigger than all of our sin combined. Those who reject the notion that you cannot outsend grace, so he answers them. He asks two rhetorical questions in the chapter. And we're going to look at the whole chapter tonight. I know we did 14 verses on Sunday. We're going to move quickly through those. But I want this whole thing in context. And Paul gives two rhetorical questions that did not originate with Paul. 
get that. They didn't come from Him. Now the first question we did cover on Sunday. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's question number one. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Question number one. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now, as Woost points out, Paul understood grace. By the time he's writing this magnum opus to the church in Rome, he understood grace. He had been preaching grace for many years now. So what he's unleashing on them in terms of grace, he gets it. He understands it. These questions would not come from him. But we know he heard these questions many times in his missionary travels. He's talking about grace and someone says, Whoa, well, so are we just to keep on sinning? So that grace may increase? And he answers the first question. And by way of review, he answers it in three ways. We know when Jesus died to sin, we died to sin. Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into the death. That is the death of Christ. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be of His resurrection. Knowing this, second time he says that word, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. He immersed us. And remember this, when Paul wrote this, baptism, though it was practiced in the early church, though it was an ordinance per se, the word baptism didn't have the religiosity that we apply to it today. It was simply the word immerse. And Paul says, he immersed us with him. We have been immersed into Jesus by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. We are saturated with Jesus. When we put faith in him, we died with him at Calvary, saturated by that death that brings about resurrection. Completely immersed. Now that's not to deny water baptism. Because water baptism, as we talked about, is that symbol of the far greater reality. But it is not the reality itself. It's not the water that cleanses you. Otherwise, every one of you who were ever baptized in the pond would still be sin-sick. It's not the water. It's not the act that symbolizes the greater immersion. By the way, Paul surreptitiously introduces a theme in verse 7 that he's going to expand upon later. And it's the concept of slavery versus freedom. Note verse 7 again. He says, He who has died is freed, set free, delivered, if you will, from sin. He wrote to the churches in Galatia, chapter 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to self-righteousness. Don't go back to the law. You have been free from the law. Live in grace. Galatians 5.13, which was our key verse for the men's retreat. For you were called to freedom, bros. 
Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You are free. See, the marvelous thing about being free from the law and free in grace is I am now free to love people. Free to serve. Free to do everything that I do in Jesus, for Jesus, because of Jesus. Not because it might save me. Grace is a great place in which to stand. Of course, sometimes freedom is as unnerving and risky as grace is. We like the fences. We like to know how big the yard is. We don't want to get out into the street. And so we don't necessarily want freedom. And so we keep drifting back to law because I feel safe there. And God's got this vast universe of grace that He wants us to run and play in, but we want to go back to the front yard and close the gate. Because freedom's kind of unnerving. Well, Paul went on to write, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing, he says for the third time, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, Cheryl told me, after the teaching on Sunday, that she felt like the first section was almost too long. You know, she, she said, it, it, was, it kind of felt like, okay, I get it, we're dead to sin. Move on. <laughs> For any of you who think I can occasionally, occasionally wax eloquent or wax an elephant in my teaching, please understand that my wife has to sit there and endure it too. And I have to go home with her. So understand, we know. I get it. But you know what? Cheryl was right. I thought about what she said. And I thought, well, did I preach too long? And I went back and I read Romans 6 and I thought... No, I just covered the passage. Paul preached too long. It was his fault. Paul covers this, and he covers it again, and he covers it again. He says, you have died to sin. You have died with Christ. When Jesus died, you died. He just goes over and over and over this for several verses here in chapter 6. He hammers away until every single nail is embedded in the coffin of our sin. Because he wants to be sure that we know this. When he died, we died. Now that only happens when you put your faith in him. But the moment you put your faith in him, the moment you trust in Christ, your death instantly, 2,000 years ago, happened. Done deal. You have died to sin. How can we continue to live in it any longer? Verse 11 then, he goes on. He gives the second point. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So not only do we know that when He died, we died, but we reckon ourselves, we consider ourselves alive. It's not enough to know that you've died to sin. Now, Paul says, understand, you're alive. You're not still dead. Some of our churches need to hear that. You're not still dead. You're alive in Christ Jesus. You died to sin, now reckon yourself alive. You see, you live because He lives. John 14, 19, He said, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will. Because I live, you will live also. He is the hope of resurrection. Our, our, our living hope, First Peter 1, 3 tells us. 
Because He lives, I live. John chapter 20, verse 31. John at the end of his Gospel says, These things have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Life. The abundant life promised by Christ. And John would write in 1 John 5.20, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I love this verse, This is the true God and eternal life. What is John? Jesus Christ is true God and eternal life. And I'm alive because He lives. Know that you died. Reckon yourself alive. And then finally, we present arms. Right? That kind of shocked a few people Sunday morning when I said, Present arms! And again, I know one or two of you Navy personnel were ready to jump to your feet. I'm glad that you didn't. You showed tremendous self-control. But verse 12 going on says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Instruments. Hoplon. Meaning weapons. And that was the whole tail end of what we studied Sunday morning. Absolutely a military term in the Greek language. Hoplon referring to the implements of battle. Because we are at war. We know we died. We reckon ourselves alive. And now we present arms. We are good to go for the fight. Now many of you are familiar with the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6. You've read it. You've heard it. You've studied it. We read it Sunday morning. I want to read you another passage in which Paul describes what this battle looks like. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, just go over a couple of books to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Recognizing that we are to present arms. Well, what does that mean? It means to enter the fray. It means to be willing to fight the battle. Okay, but what does that look like? Paul describes it from his own experience. Now I want to begin in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because it sets the page for us. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the sanctified. The hagiosmos, the holiness. Alright? And, Paul writes, working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How do you receive the grace of God in vain? You go back to works. You go back to law. You lean on your own self-righteousness and you will take the grace of God in vain. Don't do that. For he says at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Anyone know when the day of salvation was? Today. Today's the day. If Today's the day that you make the choice. The day of salvation, again, happened the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and it launched you back 2,000 years to the cross and you have been saved. The day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now watch this, verse 3. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. 
but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. In much endurance. Here's what the battle looks like, gang. In much endurance. In afflictions. In hardships. In distresses. In beatings. In imprisonments. In tumults. In labors. In sleeplessness. In hunger. In purity. In knowledge. In patience. In kindness. In the Holy Spirit. In genuine love. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons, hoplon, of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's what the battle looks like. People will call you a liar, a deceiver. You know you're walking in the truth. Continue to walk. People will go after you in all of these things. You will be dishonored in this world. But the glory comes from God. You're going to find yourself feeling somewhat unknown, and yet you are well known by Jesus. And I could go through each one of these, and we will when we get to 2 Corinthians, Lord willing. But aside from the one verse on weapons, you might say, where's the battle? The whole passage describes it. It describes the conflict that believers can expect. And it describes the response that we are to have as we enter into this holy warfare. We fight, we present arms with the weapons of righteousness. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God, which is what Paul has been unveiling before us in his letter to the church at Rome. Understand this, and we'll see more of this in a bit. The weapons of the enemy are corrupt. They're the stuff of corruption, which means they rust. It means they break. It means they shatter in warfare. It means they're ineffective. That's the weapons of our enemy. The weapons of the saints are incorruptible. Our weapons are eternal. The Word of God. Eternal. Shield of faith. Breastplate of righteousness. Helmet of salvation. Belt of truth. Feet shod with the gospel of peace. I mean, these are eternal things, lasting, incorruptible things, things that that this world cannot waste away. While the weapons of the enemy are corruptible. Now, I I mention that because I want to plant a seed for a little bit later because this is not the only time in Romans chapter 6, and you can go back there, it's not the only time in the chapter that Paul uses military language. Wait for it. You may be surprised. I was. Now, in verse 14... We turn a corner. Verse 14, Paul says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Remember what God said to Cain. Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Someone's going to be the master. Who's it going to be? Who is the master, and who is the slave? 
And with this statement, Paul now turns to an absolutely essential component of sanctification, and that is mastery. Mastery. And you have been, brothers and sisters, I have been empowered to be master over this issue. To have mastery over sin. But pull back for a moment and recognize that in this discussion that Paul's about to get into of master and slave, that the law is a taskmaster. The law is a taskmaster. You can never do enough and you will never be good enough. Anyone ever felt that way in their life? No matter what I do, it's never enough. Maybe you felt that way as a child growing up. Maybe you have felt that way in a relationship or at work or with, with certain people. Man, no matter what I do, it's never enough. That's the law. You cannot do enough to be approved. You are never good enough. The law is a taskmaster. The law was given through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So as much as the law is a taskmaster, grace is a rest master. A rest master for all those who believe. You see, Jesus put it this way. You know the verse. Come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a few more rules to keep. Come unto me, and I will give you more law. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Precious ones in Christ Jesus, you are under the authority of grace. So rest in that. I've had this conversation now two or three times this week. When I'm stressing, when I'm striving, when I'm rushing, I am not under the mastery of grace. I'm under the taskmaster. I find in my life, when I'm striving, I am out of sync. Because there's nothing striving about following Jesus. When I am stressed out, I'm out of sync. Because stress has nothing to do with following Jesus. Grace is about rest. And when you are in the rest of grace, then the rest of your life does not stress you out. Wherever there is strain or striving, the taskmaster is at work, and that is not grace. John said, First John one, or John one sixteen, for of his fullness we have received grace upon grace, and he keeps extending grace, and he keeps giving grace. And so, with all that understood, we come to the second question. The second question is now in verse fifteen. What then? You're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Paul has the exact same gut level response in the spirit that he had to the first question. No way. Or Woost puts it this way, away with that thought. Two questions. Now you might say, I'm not seeing the difference. 
How is the second question different than the first question? Listen to the first question again back in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's the first question. Second question, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? It sounds the same. It's not. Question number one has to do with sin as a lifestyle. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we live in sin? Question number one, with that question, Paul responds, he deals with habitual, continual sin. That is sin that is practiced. Sin that is accepted as a way of life and ongoing continual sin. That is what God gave humanity over to in Romans 1, 24 through 32. Remember when we studied that? He gave them over. Three times we're told He gave them over, ultimately to their own depravity. That sin is a lifestyle. You want to live in sin? You want to practice sin? That is what Paul answers in verse 1. That whole first section. You are dead to sin. How can you live in sin? If you died to sin, how can you be someone who practices sin? And I'll say this very clearly to you, gang. That's what breaks down the homosexual argument that says I can be homosexual and a Christian. You can't. Not according to this word. Because you are practicing the very thing that you died to, supposedly. If I died to sin, how can I continue to live in it? How can I practice it? How can I be continual with it? Yeah, but everybody sins. Okay, we'll get there. But how can you practice sin? Let me read this to you, and some of you may be familiar with it. But one of the best answers and understandings of this whole idea is 1 John chapter 3 where John addresses the issue of the difference between a follower of Jesus and someone who lives without any faith at all. One practices sin. The other one practices righteousness. And the key word is practices. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Now, don't misunderstand that. John's not saying that if you practice righteousness, ultimately you'll be righteous. He's not saying if you practice righteousness, you'll get to the point of being righteous, and then you can kick back and go, hey, I'm just righteous. I'm a righteous dude. Truth is, I'm already righteous. God has declared me righteous. In Christ Jesus, that's justification, right? Now, as I practice righteousness... It is evidence that I am among the righteous. That I belong to God. That I died to sin. Because my lifestyle is practicing righteousness. I used to practice the cello. My mom made me practice it every day. I played the cello for four painful years. And then I played the drums and it was great. And she never had to tell me to practice the drums. But I practiced the cello every day. Was I, you know, a virtuoso? No. But I was practicing And during that short period of my life, those four years, you could say that Rick was a cellist. (laughs) I was no Yo-Yo Ma. There were times where I felt like saying Yo-Yo Ma. When I'm in the room and she's in the kitchen, I'm like, Yo-Yo Ma, I want to stop now. You know. But I was practicing. So I was a cellist. I was practicing. I wasn't the best in the world, but I was certainly a player of the cello. That's what I practiced. And he says in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. I don't think he could make that any clearer. Practices sin, lifestyle of sin. 
A life that says, I'm going to live this way even though I know it's abhorrent to God. I could say the same thing about sexual immorality of any kind. Those who sit in Bible study and then go home and spend the the night um, downloading internet porn, you're practicing sin. That is a lifestyle. Stop it. Those who are cohabitating. Sex outside of marriage, outside of the marital bond, as determined by God, the ordinance given by Him, one man and one woman for life, that's His plan. And so couples who are cohabitating are no different than the couple that is homosexual. Gang, they're both practicing sin. See what I'm saying? Hear what what John is saying and what Paul is saying? He says the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. You might go, oh, but I sinned yesterday. Am I not born of God? He didn't say that. He said no one who is born of God practices sin. Is continual in sin. Lives a lifestyle of sin. We stop that. And he goes on and says, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. He cannot practice sin. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I love that John throws that one in there. The practice of the thing. Sin as a lifestyle. And Paul answers the question. Are we to continue in sin so grace may increase? No. If you've died to it, how can you continue in it? So you make a choice. When you give your life to Jesus, when you trust in Him, we made a choice. I am no longer going to live for myself, I'm going to live for Him. And that means the practice of my life is going to be a practice of righteousness. Like Rick practicing the cello, maybe not perfect, but certainly practicing. I have determined, and by the way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, I can practice righteousness. Having been declared righteous by God. So the first question addresses that. The practice of sin as a lifestyle. But I think the second question maybe hits home a little better for the average Christian. In a pretty important way because it addresses not sin as a lifestyle, but sin as an incident. Incidental sin. This is now the question of occasional sin. Of sporadic sin or spasmodic sin. I like the word spasmodic you know, it's just said, oh man, I just sinned. What was I thinking? I have just sinned. I wasn't practicing, but I sinned as an event, as an incident. And some will waver in confidence because of incidental sin. I've had the conversation I get countless times with brothers and sisters in Christ who are worried about their salvation because of an incidental sin. I blew it. I did what I used to do and I, I feel awful about it. And have I lost my salvation? No. But hold on. He's addressing incidental sin. Others will use grace more dangerously as a license for incidental sin. Occasional sin. Paul says, shall we sin, even occasionally, shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? And there are many Christians who would say, put it this way, so I got drunk that one time, no big. I'm under grace. You know, so so I saw that one movie. That's alright. It's okay. I, I lied, okay? 
So I cheated. So I sinned. Hey, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Right? But listen. The context of Paul saying that, Romans 3.23, is sin prior to justification. It is not sin after justification. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, he goes on to say, are justified freely by His grace. Yeah, I used to sin, but I died to that. How can I live in it anymore? How can I continue in it? But check it out. Paul says right here to the second question, the incidental, the occasional, the spastic sin. (laughs) Spasmodic. He says, shall we do that? May it never be. Whoa, Paul, come on. Show a little grace, man. You're telling me now that even my incidental sin, you're saying, may it never be? And then he takes us into a fantastic place that maybe you hadn't thought about before. He answers the incidental sinner by saying, the Christian has changed masters. You are no longer under the master of sin. You are now under the master of grace. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Remember that word present? Don't you understand that you present yourself, it's peristemi, and it means stand near. The one to whom you stand nearest will be your master. You will either place yourself under the mastery of sin or under the mastery of grace. Which is it going to be? I think there are an awful lot of us who have for years, and I'm raising my hand, jumped back and forth stayed under the mastery of sin just long enough to be kind of uncomfortable and and then try to jump back into grace and back into sin and back into grace and we get confused and we lose confidence and we start to worry and that is not how Jesus wants you to walk. He wants us to enjoy grace. To practice righteousness. And to look at the whole issue of sin as if it were Egyptian bondage. Why would you want to go back and live there again? We have a new master now. Someone might say, well, I'm not a slave to anyone. That's exactly what the Pharisees said. Jesus and and the Pharisees are talking. John 8, 31, He was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you're truly disciples of Mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they answered Him, We're Abraham's descendants and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Okay, every one of them failed history. (laughs) How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Free of what, Jesus? Free from sin. 
And the challenge that Paul lays down before us here is that by grace, not only do we no longer continue in sin, but we can choose not to sin. What happens when I do sin? Grace is there. But we've got to change the mindset that says it's okay from time to time to trip up and sin. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's another nail in the hand of Jesus. It's a huge deal. Please don't hear me talking down here. I'm talking to Rick. That, That the lifestyle that we've been called to in Christ is so radically different than what I was taught for years. Stop thinking that it's just okay that if I flub up over here, not a big deal. It is a huge deal. Stop sinning, Paul would say. You've been given the power not to. You don't have to go back to that stuff anymore. Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And by the way, I point that out, that whole situation with Jesus and the Pharisees, to show you that this teaching did not originate with Paul. It originated with the Spirit of God. It's direct from Christ Jesus. You have a choice. I have a choice. I can be a slave to sin, or I can be a slave to righteousness. My call. What's it going to be? You cannot be slave to both. The Greek word for slave here is important. There in verse 16... Do you not know when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience? You are slaves of the one you obey. Okay, so the word slave is doulos in the Greek. Doulos. Make note of that. It means bond servant. Now, we've heard that word. In fact, all the New Testament letters start out with the writer of the letter saying, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a doulos. That's the word. It's not diakonos. Some of you might say, I thought servant was diakonos. It is. Deacon, deaconess, diakonai, diakonos. That word is used in the New Testament as well, but speaks of a minister, of a servant in ministry. The word doulos is not the nice word for servant. It's the, it's the lowest, most abject, most servile term for slave in the Greek language. There is not a worse word that you can use. There is not a lower form of word here that you can use. Doulos is slave. I want you to understand three things. Three things about what this word described in the Greco-Roman world. Number one, the doulos was one who was born a slave. Born a slave. Behold... (laughs) David wrote, and we read this verse last week, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. I was born a slave of sin. Came into this world and began sinning right away. Not the sin of of Adam, no. It's not original sin. I'm plenty original all on my own. But I was born a slave. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul underscores it. We were by nature children of wrath. So I was born a slave. As Paul so deftly showed in the last chapter, chapter 5, we were born into sin and therefore born slaves of sin. And then Jesus comes along and says, John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Every one of us were born a slave, a doulos to sin. But (laughs) I've been born again. I was born of water and a slave to sin, and now I'm born again of the Spirit, a slave to righteousness. So I'm still born a slave, I'm just born again a slave, not of sin, but of righteousness. Second thing, the doulos is one who is born a slave, or the doulos is one who was bought out. Who was bought out, bought a slave. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If you're born again in Christ Jesus, you are born to be a slave of righteousness. If you are a follower of Christ Jesus, you were bought by Him, again, to be a slave to righteousness. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Be a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ Jesus. And you might say, well, I really don't like the idea of being bought. Maybe the better word is redeemed. You have been redeemed. Same type of word, but there's a difference. A slave is bought, a freed man is redeemed. Redemption is being purchased to be set free. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were bought out so you could be sold out to Jesus. Literally abdicating your will for Him. I think I may have shared this uh, a few years back, but I had a friend in... uh, in grad school, we used to spend some time together. He was the only other Christian in my class, and so we, we hit it off and, and we're good friends at that time and spent a lot of time talking. And we spent some time, I'll never forget this, chewing on the idea of handing over free will. That God had given me free will, but handing it back to Him. Of literally abdicating my will to God. Of saying, in my life, Lord, I know You've given me freedom to choose how I want to live. I want to hand it back to You. I don't want to be free anymore. I want to be a slave. I want to be your slave. Kind of like the prodigal son. Just let me be a slave in the house. And that's good enough for me because at least I know I'm not going to be eating pig food. Let me be a slave of yours, Lord. Giving up the free will. Hey, if you have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, that's what that means. I now abdicate my will for His. That sounds great, it sounds spiritual, it sounds easy when we're sitting here in the sanctuary, but what if it has to do with something you want to do? But I like this music. I want to give it up. But but I like this genre of literature. I love how we call dirty books literature. (laughs) I don't want to give it up. You've been bought. You are a slave. If you're born again, you were born a slave. And we keep going. The doulos is not only one who was born a slave and bought a slave. The doulos is one who was bound until death. Again, in in the Greek and Roman world, if you were a doulos, you were a slave to death. Freedom was not on the agenda, was not down the line for you. It wasn't service a, a certain amount of time and then you'd be let free. No, if you were a doulos, you were a slave until you died. 
And we have a beautiful New Testament or Old Testament picture of that. Exodus chapter 21. I'll just read it to you. Where Paul, where God is giving the law to the Jewish people and they had some issues going on. They already had slavery happening. God does not approve of slavery anywhere in Scripture. But what He does do is set up a system by which slaves would be at least treated fairly. Until He could teach the people and lead them out of that mentality. And so He said, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. He owes you nothing. So here's the new thing, Jewish people. If you have slaves, you get them for six years. If they're indentured to you, if they owe you something and so they become your slave, six years they will serve you, but then they get to be free. And that's the command, that's the law, because God doesn't want people to be slaves. But then he goes on, and I love this. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, and my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So the slave can choose to be an indentured servant for life. If he decides that. He may love his master, he may love the family, he may have a wife and children that he had as as a slave, and doesn't want to walk away from any of it. So he says, you know what, I'd rather just stay here and serve you. Okay? And so they would pierce the ear. A man's ear being pierced in, in Israel meant he was an indentured slave. That was the sign. Slave for life. That is a doulos. Slave for life. Never to be set free. And that, by the way, is the mentality of a servant of God. Born into slavery of righteousness. Bought as a slave of righteousness. And bound until death to be a slave of righteousness. Back to Romans 6 verse 17. Paul says, but but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And it can't be both ways. And again, as Paul is laying out sanctification for us, this is the point he's making. It can't be both ways. We have to stop living as if we can be slaves of righteousness, mostly and occasionally slaves to sin. No, that's the wrong mentality. You have a new master. Serve him. No one can serve two masters. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 6.24, Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now Jesus was talking about money in that context. But the principle is valid. You can't be under two opposing masters. I had a band director and I had a basketball coach in high school and they were opposing masters. I played basketball and I played the drums and I loved to do both. And I wanted to work it out to be able to do both. But these two guys would not connect. They would not talk. They would not work with me. It was so frustrating. And the last two years of my high school career, I quit band because I had to make a choice. I could not serve both. Only one. 
And that's what Paul is, is talking about. Now, now that's kind of a lame example, and I give lame examples sometimes, and so does Paul. Sometimes Paul just gives a lame example that doesn't quite get us there, and he apologizes for it in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Weakness is asthenia. Because of the asthenia of your flesh. That is the weakness in understanding. It's because these things, there's, there's nothing of a physical nature that can truly compare to what he's talking about. Christianity is not slavery. You know, the concept of being a slave to righteousness rather than a slave to sin. Paul says, I understand that that doesn't quite get there because Christianity is not slavery. It's nothing like slavery. It's pure freedom. But what he's saying here is, but I need you to understand the mentality of a bond slave. We need to apply from a physical perspective the mentality of a bond slave to our following of Jesus if we're to have a right attitude. So, I know this isn't the perfect example, but it's the best we've got, Paul says. So I'm, gonna, I'm using this to kind of try and explain something in the flesh. Well, understand this. God went even further to explain this in the flesh. Because Jesus Himself became the doulos. So that we would understand what this whole thing looks like. He was born into a sinful world, though He Himself was sinless. He was bought out by the betrayal of 30 pieces of silver. He was bound until death. Well, his ear wasn't pierced. No, his hands and his feet were. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Paul says in Philippians 2, 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why would he do that? So that, Revelation 22 verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem, and his bond servants, his doulos, will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Paul is calling all saints to sanctification, a spiritual shift to a new master that we might be the doulos of the Lord of all grace. Bond slaves of a gracious master from whom we do not want to go away. Verse 19 continuing. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, and remember, this is the imperfect example, Paul admits that, but he's, he's making the comparison, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? You didn't have to be righteous. When you were an abject sinner, you do whatever you wanted. Because you weren't righteous, so whatever. You were free to do whatever you wanted in regard to righteousness. Verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Any of you look back and think about previous sin and feel proud. 
Boy, I remember that time I got stoned. That was great. I remember that time that I was sexually active outside of marriage. And boy, wasn't that just wonderful? I was such an example to my friends and my peers. I'm not saying that I did those things. Just just saying. (laughs) Just giving an example here. But who looks back at their old sin life and goes, Oh, I just miss it so much. I wish I could go back and be an abject sinner. I wish my life could be as messed up as it used to be. Boy, what a grand time. What benefit? For the outcome of those things, he says, is death. Corruption. He says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. Hagiosmos. Holiness. And as I shared Sunday, it is holiness and the noun form. That is holiness as a state of being. Which is just overwhelming to me when I think about it. God justifies me and then immediately sets me in a state of holiness, even as He continues the process of holiness. So even though I'm being made holy, He looks at me as holy. I'm already there, but I'm being perfected to be there. How does that work? It doesn't, in my mind, it only can work in the mind of God. He declares me righteous and then He makes me righteous. The hagiosmos. And Paul presses this example. Shall we sin even occasionally because we're not under law but under grace? Not when we recognize our Master is the Lord of grace. How do I deal with these incidental sins in my life? Recognize who your Master is. Live for Him. And if you fall then you stand right back up and you confess to your Master and you continue on in grace. But you don't give yourself license to sin simply because you're under grace. We don't sweep it under the rug. Well, we do, but we shouldn't. (laughs) Far too many of us as believers will sweep sin under the rug or wink at it. Not that big a deal. I know you did this, but (laughs) it's okay. We all do. Stop thinking that way. And confess. You know, I think there would be a whole lot more confession in the church if we recognize the Master. And if we recognize that He is the Lord of all grace. If He's the Lord of all grace, then I can confess anything to Him and I will be forgiven. And I will continue to walk in grace. That's who He is. Well, I don't want to say it. What if people look at me differently? Who cares? He loves you. He has justified you. He is now sanctifying you. Live for Him. How do we say no to sin as a lifestyle? That may be a little easier. Just stop living that lifestyle and start living for the Master. But how do we say no to incidental sin? We continue to say yes to Jesus. We continue to live under His authority. In fact, that's why Paul says in Hebrews 12, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because it's real hard to serve the old dead master of sin when my eyes are on the living Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. You want to overcome sin? Keep looking at Jesus. And recognize He is your master. Now, one verse left. One of the most quoted verses in all the New Testament. One of the most familiar. And yet different than I ever expected it to be. For the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the second military term in the passage. I love it. The first was instruments, hoplon, weapons of warfare. And now the term is wages. Wages is a military term. In the Greek, it's opsonion. And the opsonion was literally rations. The rations of sin is death. Understand this. Culturally speaking, the Roman foot soldier of the day was often only paid in rations. As you moved up through the ranks and gained a higher position, you would have more pay. You would have actual pay, uh, cash pay. But for the foot soldier, often it was just this. It was opsonion. And that was the word for it. And it could come in the form of fish or corn or meat or fruit or salt or anything given kind of as, as, as an extra to go along with bread. And the Roman foot soldier was, was uh, required to bring his own bread. But he was given then something to eat with the bread, which was the rations, the opsonium. But it was subsistence pay at best. These wages were very little. Did, did you see the news just this last week? Uh, a whole bunch of members of Boko Haram, the terrorist group in Nigeria, gave themselves up because they were starving to death. Literally. They and their wives and kids right now are at HQ in Nigeria under you know, the watch of the Nigerian soldiers because they, they came with their hands up because they were absolutely starving, they were dying, and they couldn't exist. They had to give themselves up. And that is the wages of sin. It starves you out. It's subsistence pay, survival food. It's just a step above war, welfare for the, for the Roman foot soldier. Just barely enough to keep you in line. To keep you marching. The rations of sin is death. And will kill you. We have a great example of this. Also in the Hebrew Scriptures. You don't have to turn there, I'll just share this with you quickly. The Israelites are duking it out against the Philistines. And they're in a long, hard-fought battle, and King Saul made a rash pronouncement. We're told in 1 Samuel 14.24, the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. Saul had put his people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, for until and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put people under the oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And here you are eating, Jonathan. And the people were weary. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey? How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Listen to this. And they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very weary, and they rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. 
they had their meat rare that day, which was a violation of the law of God. You do not eat the meat with the blood. Absolutely critical. That's, that's Levitical law, gang. That's Leviticus 17.11. You shall not eat the blood with the meat, for the blood is life. God says you don't violate this one. And the people rushed and they violated the law. Why? Because a rash statement was made. Don't eat while you fight until we wipe out our enemies and then we can talk about having some food. So when they finally did, they were so out of their minds with hunger, they rushed on the cattle and the sheep and tore them apart. And it was a bloody mess. It was foolishness on Saul's part to keep his people from eating. The New Testament says you don't, you don't muzzle the oxen while he treads out the grain. You want an oxen to work hard? Put a little grain bag in front of him. He'll work for you. And in this case, the wages of sin, the rations of sin, the feed of sin is death. It only corrupts, it only kills. It was wisdom on the part of Jonathan to take some honey. And what, what a great picture. What sin does versus what grace does. What do we as bond slaves, what do we receive enlisted in the army of God? Listen, we have the word, which is sweeter than honey. We have the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ himself. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have the wine of great joy, His blood. But get this, none of it, none of it is pay. We don't get rations. We do not get wages. We get a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life, which means we didn't earn it. God doesn't ration. He doesn't pay wages. He freely gives the gift of grace unto eternal life and along with it, the honey of the Word and the bread of heaven and the fruit of the Spirit and the wine of joy and on and on we can go. We can make lists and lists of how we are fed by the Lord, by His grace. Because God doesn't ration. He just freely gives eternal life. So back to where we began. Grace is free. It is only risky in that it puts me out of control. It's only risky in that I, 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 my only hope for life is to trust in my Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, who freely gives all things. And note this, one final thing tonight. Paul concludes this section by pointing out that this free gift of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Jesus is eternal life. He is the free gift of eternal life and we will spend eternity with Him, the Master of all grace. So you know what? Maybe we ought to start learning to live under His authority. Father, I pray for the power to do this. Lord, for the humbleness to recognize that the power is not mine, that the grace is not mine, that it's not earned, that you don't ration out to us just what we need for one day to the next, barely getting by, but you freely give us all things. That you called out to us, Lord Jesus, you said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Freely given. 
And Lord, I, I truly pray it. I ask this for myself. I ask this for my brothers and sisters that we will not be bound to sin any longer. Not only will we not practice sin as an ongoing lifestyle, but we won't commit sin. We will commit, Lord, to You. We will determine to be under the authority and the Lordship and the mastery of Jesus Christ and to live by grace and the freedom that comes with it. And Father, I pray that more and more as we live under Your grace, as You are sanctifying the sanctified, Lord, I ask that You will make sin gross to us. Just make it ugly. Even things we used to run to, make it, make it disgusting. Give us Your view of sin. Help us to consider that even that picture of the Israelites chowing down on bloody flesh. I mean, I think gross. And that's sin. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that You will continue to cleanse and free us especially from this mentality that we can't help it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.